0: Alright, so here we go. Uh, we are in our, our passage today, which is Romans 8, 31 to 34. Okay, so two things. As I talk for a moment, if you don't have a Bible in your hands, I would uh, get one on your phone. We have some in the back you can use. We would really encourage you to get a copy of the scriptures in your hands so you can see God's words, not my words. My words have only helped today if God's words are simply um, a description of and an unfolding of God's words. So uh, get that going. We're going to Romans 8. As we start this morning, I just want to say on the family level, church family level, uh, we want to continue to thank you guys for praying with us and keep praying with us. Um, you guys see we're, we're shifting all kinds of stuff these days right now. Um, we sent an email this week asking people at our church to think about like our giving and this building and that kind of stuff. And then we sent another one saying, hey, hold on to it. We want to take a little bit longer of a time to think and pray together. So, um, uh, church family, we just want to remind you of our situation where we're in. Um, we do need God's greater provision for us. So we're, we're wanting us all to really pray for that. We're not wanting to fix it first. We're wanting to ask for God's provision in that first, okay? And then number two, uh, we're happy as clams here in this building, as long as we can have this building, but then in the middle of us praying for God's provision, God dropped the p- opportunity of possibly buying a building in the middle of our major neighborhood right up here in Marion Village. And we're just trying to figure out if that's what God has for us. It, it just came to us. seems like the Lord is actually kind of pointing towards that and he's provided a number of things towards it, but he still needs to provide hundreds of thousands of dollars if that was to happen. So here's our business. we got to seek the Lord's face on this. What does he want? It sure looks like that'd be great, be a great location for us, a great opportunities for us to connect to the neighborhood better, have opportunities to serve our kids, have opportunities to to be permanent there in that neighborhood and not get bumped out because of this and that, and our landlord wanted to bulldoze our building and things like that. So could be really, really fantastic if that's what God wants for us. And we think the Lord's angling towards that, so we're just asking for him to affirm by delivering a number of things, including a whole truckload of money. He's got it all. So would you please, number one, just be praying for us. And, and then patient with us as we send out pieces of information and updates and maybe some more prayer times. We had a prayer time this week. Uh, pray with us. Please pray with us. Here's the deal. We are God's people. He takes care of us. Our passage today is going to talk all about that. But we want to be in step with how he's leading. That's our business. So pray with us so we could find the Lord's will through this and be together. So let's be together as God's family on our knees together at that. All right. All right. We are in Romans chapter 8, verse 31 to 34 today. Um, there's a lot of you guys that have that are kind of new in the room today, and you may not have been through our journey of Romans with us. We've been in Romans this year, and Romans is this amazing book. Romans is basically like the economic manual from heaven. Like it's, it's how it's all working. It's all the details of it. Um, it's Paul, Paul wrote this. Paul's not in Rome. He wrote it by the power of the Spirit to some believers in Rome. They have some heavy-duty questions. These are thinker people. They have these influences from the Jewish community that are making strong claims and asking good questions. And Paul is launching this mega-letter <laughs> across the water over to the church in Rome to help them understand deep, answers to deep questions and so therefore it's a long book and it's a hard book to think through and a hard book to study through uh, by far the hardest book i've ever studied through in scripture but for us as a church our our business is we want to be in tune with jesus jesus is our savior and jesus is our king so we want to keep sitting at his feet and say you tell us what's up like give us the information let us understand these things and god so graciously gives us the book of romans that we learn so many things from romans we couldn't learn anywhere else and some of those things are past our abilities to understand. They are momentary boost up into the stratosphere of God's location and how he thinks and his plans and he lets us see certain things up there and then he doesn't let us see certain things up there. So he boosts us up because he wants us to understand it and he lets us back down. Romans 8 is this, is this, this spot along the journey where it's, it's just really a, a sweet chapter of care. It's where The Spirit, through Paul, has said, hey, this amazing time, you people who've come to know and believe in Jesus, who've said, all right, I don't want to be separated from you. I could be a Jewish person or a non-Jewish person. I personally have to be a non-Jewish person. I don't know what it is, some kind of Scandinavian mutt, I'm not sure. But um, I, as a Gentile person, maybe you as a Jewish person, Romans 1 and 2, have come to realize that we have pushed God off and we're separated from God completely, right? But then he tells us we can have him we ask him to save us based upon the work of Jesus. All of Romans is the unfolding of how and why that works, why it's so important. In Romans 6 and 7 and then a little bit in 8, it talks about how to obey and how it's not how someone would think. It's not just general moralism. It's not actually going and obeying the Old Testament code. And it's definitely not obeying what your heart tells you to do every day, but instead now he's leading us by giving us his word and leading us by his spirit. His spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is Put inside us the moment we come to be a believer in Jesus Christ. And he does things in us. Testifies with our spirit that we are the sons of God. He is the spirit of sonship. Because because if you know Jesus, there's two options for you. You're a son of God or you're a daughter of God. Option A, option B. There's no like family dog of the family of, of God. There's no cousins of the family of God, son or daughter. Fully and deeply loved. Those are your two options. And they're really the same option. And His Spirit's in us. And His Spirit is testifying and moving our hearts more and more towards the Father. And then, and then about chap- verse 8 in chapter 8, He introduces the fact that though we are so loved, um, there is this new future for us. Because we are His sons and adopted as His, there's a new future for us. And that future is not just bliss. That future is not just tearlessness and wonderful things in heaven. It includes all that. But He says we will be glorified with Him. As sons and daughters, we are legal heirs of God with Christ. All of a sudden, some completely heretical-sounding things if it wasn't God who was saying it, right? There's no way we, we don't have a right as people to say we have access to be heard by God, much less forgiven by God, much less drawn by God, much less adopted by God, much less made heirs of God, much less when he says those words glorified. I will bring glory in you so all of a sudden there's just this enormous enormous treatment of god to people like me sinners like me sinners like you right amazing treatment and then in verse 8 he splits it he goes but most of that is in the future most of that in the future now there's a now life and the now life can be hard the now life is a life of investment and he spends largely a lot of romans 8 talking about how he will sustain us and how he'll provide for us, and how we should think in the now life. The word of the in the middle of, of, ch- of the 20s says it's a life of hope. Not american hope, because we think, we see, here hope, we hear like a not likely wish. I sure hope my team wins. I sure hope I win the lottery. I sure hope I never die. Those are like, in American language of hope, hope is kind of opposite of what biblical hope is. Biblical hope is Rock-solid, 100% confidence of something that will happen. Hope is the moment you start to drop a pen that you are expecting to hit the ground. That's biblical hope. That's the hope of Romans 8. So he talks about this hope. Then he comes in the last two weeks' passage about how the Spirit's in us, helps us pray because we need the help, and then how the Father is moving every single thing in our lives together for our good by his sovereign hand. For our good. And then we get to our passage today, because the end of this chapter is the the portion where God is helping us know the strong, secure love of God. Because while we live in the now life here, he wants us to know very clearly the relationship between him and us. Particularly, he wants us to know very clearly his perspective towards us, because he doesn't want to be up in the air. He doesn't want you to be guessing how he feels about you. He doesn't want you to be guessing about what he's going to do with you. He wants you to know with No confused terminology, how he sees you, but us. You, but us. The passage switches into us language and out of you language. Because in the gospel, we become people, instead of being separated and cast abroad, we're brought together as a new family and we're an us unit. The the blessings that hit in this passage today and next week's passage, it's us blessings. You get them if you're a Christian because you're with us, us Christians. It's something He's doing to all of His people. So here's the help. Let's just say you don't know Jesus at this moment, and let's just say by the end of the sermon you do know Jesus. You're like, oh, this God is amazing. This amazing love I want in. God forgive me. I trust Jesus. Okay, let's say that happens. Everything that is said here in this passage, all these promises, are applicable to the oldest, wisest, strongest Christian in the room, and then to you immediately. This is something that's a birthright. This goes to you if you're old or young or male or female. This goes to you on your most broken, tempted, sinful day. And this goes to you on your sweetest day where you've got to lead 20 people to Jesus in the park. And then got stoned for him. Whatever it is, whatever the whole scale is, these things are yours because they are ours. Every last one of ours. So let's go into our passage. Here we are, Romans 8. 31 to 34. I will read it briefly again. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, the one who is raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So Father, help us by your spirit to speak now and please help us to listen let us father really tangle with and absorb what you were saying here and the designed impact from the throne of heaven for this to have on our hearts in the most helpful ways in christ's name amen our first piece today um, is this only god's favor matters only god's favor matters look at verse 31 what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? So let's just start off with this. What you're going to find in these three verses is not so much what God's going to do to you. What you're going to find in these three verses is who. It's a who versus who passage, all four verses, okay? So what's, what's are fantastic, who's are better. Listen to the word. What then shall we say these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? What's our moments in time? What's our small promises? What's our isolated things? Who is God himself and his nature and his care and his heart? Um, Christian friend this morning, please be attentive to all that God is saying about his heart towards you this morning and towards the people sitting around you. A non-Christian friend this morning, who might be listening to this, please look at the love that you don't have from God right now, but you could fully have from God. You don't deserve it. We didn't either. It's grace. But look at the love available. So these things, if you're listening to this as a non-believer, these things are not on you right now, but they are right there. They're right there, not for the working, but for the taking in faith. All you got to do is say, God, uh, I'm absolutely unworthy of that. I want that. I want that. I give myself to you. Please give it to me in faith. So we find an amazing who promise in this passage. It starts off with these words, what then shall we say to these things? What are these things? Well, the things mentioned in verse 28, God's working all these things together. They're found in 38, all these things, right? It's everything of life that we encounter. Um, What do we say to this idea of this amazing, these things life encountering, with these things coming in from heaven? If God is for us, what does it mean, if God is for us? Um, So New Testament is written in Greek. Sometimes there's some kind of cool things sitting there. This is mentioned several times, God being for us and doing things for us in this passage. In this passage, this isn't just an average conjunction, general for It's a very specific, like, right there for you thing, an up underneath you type of thing. If God is for us, it means God is for you. His favor is for you as a Christian. Not because you're good, because you weren't. We all know that. That's the gospel truth. But God is for you, meaning His heart is bent towards you. He loves you. He is disposed towards you. He's not a God who you sit there and pray to and go, "Please turn around, just listen to me just once." I know you. I know I don't want to. Bo- I know I know you don't want to be bothered by me. He's not bothered by you. He's for you. He's for you, and, and we'll talk in the next verse a little bit about how the ex- how that's expressed in him being for you, but what is left in this verse here is the difference between the one who is for you and anybody else, option A, God, who's for you, and option B, anybody else. If God is for you, who can be against you? So this is particularly helpful to a whole bunch of us that are like man fevers and man-lovers, right? That, that just... Man, we want people to approve of us. We want people to hold us tight in intimacy that we need them. This is amazing words for us and hits the core. Again, I know I said it last week because we were in Romans eight twenty-eight. That's one of the top m- 10 most important verses for every Christian to memorize. Uh, this might be 11 or 9, somewhere in there. The simple concept, it's really easy. If God is for us, who can be against us? In your darkest moments, if God is for me, Who can be against me? God, if you are for me, what is the matter happening around me? Listen to expressions of God being for his people. I picked some Old Testament ones this morning. Um, They're completely applicable across the board because they're not the the obedience instructions for us. These are descriptions of God's heart towards his people. Deuteronomy 39. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, in the fruit of your cattle, in the fruit of of the ground, For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. What does it mean for God to be for you? He delights in you. He delights in you. Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save, and he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. What does it mean for God to be for you? He rejoices over you. He knows who you are. He knows where you came from. He knows all your limitations. The Father rejoices over you. He will quiet you by his love, not your performance, not your worthiness, not your intelligence, not your giftedness. He will quiet you by his love. Your soul will be quieted by looking at his love, not yours. Not your love for him, his love. He will rejoice over you. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. The God of heaven exalts over you with loud singing. It's just so different than how I'd imagine him, isn't it, for you? I mean, once you get your head screwed on straight and actually deal with the fact that he's there, and he made everything, and he's spotless, and faultless and wise and is inside everyone's head and the entire planet at all times and never overloaded and all that. I just can't see him in my flesh feeling this way about us. Regardless, let me just cast aside all of Twitter and all the news and everything, that I, all the junk that I see. Me, I cannot conceive of God feeling that way about me, rejoicing over me, singing over me. Jeremiah 32, 41 says, I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. God says, He will do it with all His heart and with all His soul. If God is for us, who can be against us? If the God of the universe, who upholds the universe by the word of His power, feels this way about you as a Christian, and about us as his family. Who else matters? Who else matters? That's the grand argument of this verse. No one else matters. He's telling us to, to, thus to keep in our minds in the here life, the life where he says you will suffer. He's already told you you'll suffer in this book. He goes, So it's going to be a hard life. It's a life of investment. You need to know that he there is for us, and if he is for us, who matters here ultimately on earth? Oh, they can make you hurt, and they can make you bleed, and they can cancel you. Listen to the words of Paul, same writer, different book. The whole world can be against us. Paul says, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death, five times received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Night and day I was adrift in the sea. Frequent journeys, dangerous for rivers, dangerous for robbers, dangerous for my own people, dangerous for Gentiles. What can they do to us? A whole lot. A whole lot of brutally painful things. Jesus warned us in Luke 21, 17, you will be hated for all my name's sake. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. So it's a clear thing that who can be against us? A lot of people can be against us. And they can hurt us in... Amazing ways. They can hurt the ones we love in amazing ways. You can bleed. You can die. But Jesus, this passage, is drawing our eyes, our eyes up higher. He goes, yes, I've told you. Right? You glorify me if you suffer with me here. He goes, but remember this. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one that really matters. Because we look to a higher life. We look to, look to a higher audience. We look to a higher happiness. Who can be against us t- with any true effectiveness of ultimate consequence? No one. No one. This comes right down to our world of like man-fearing, though, right? Let's just talk about this, like just the realities of that. Um, we feel like we need approval and provisions from people, and we dread losing their favor. We, we dread losing the favor of people who think that seem that they could ruin us, that could cut off provisions from us. Uh, maybe that's financially because they're your boss. Maybe that's socially because they're your friends. Maybe that's, your f- uh, maybe that's relational because it's your family. We do fear people. A lot of us really fear people. There's a few of us in this room that don't care at all. You got some different stuff going on there. Um, I'm not mocking it. You just do. I mean, we're geared in different ways. But a lot of us really are man-fearing, man-approval-seeking people. If God's for you, does it really matter what your boss can do to you? If you get fired by your boss, is the game over, right? Or are you still loved by a God who is sovereign over all things and his favor on you and is working all things, including your nasty little boss, together for your good? What about your mother's coveted warmth of love towards you? Can't bear the thought of that. But if it's gone, is it all gone? Or still the Father who is far warmer in his love towards you, who will sustain you, is he going to work that together for your good, for really your good? What about when the people around you reject you and desert you? You'll say you're 20 or in your teens, and your friends that you really think you need are pushing you off, are shaming you, making you look bad, I just want you to know that the Father, your Father in Heaven, oh, middle schoolers, oh, high schoolers, oh, college people, beyond, your Father in Heaven, He is for you. Who can be against you? Kids don't matter. Friends don't matter in the end. God will be for you. This helps us so much to remember this. It helps us so much to remember this. Memorize this thing because the days will get hard and many, many times, lost will seem to be there. And it will seem to be that all is lost. Emotionally, you're feeling like all is lost. But God is calling over the top of you saying, I am for you. I am definitively hardcore for you. I'm rejoicing over you. I'm quieting you with my love, if you'll remember it. I'm singing over you. I love you with all my heart and all my soul. And that middle school girl doesn't. And if she did, she could never do anything for you. And that boss doesn't and never could. And that parental unit never could and never would. Look to me, look past all these people, look to me and become a fearer of God, not a fearer of man. And when you fear God, you find all of a sudden you are vastly loved by him. Vastly, vastly loved by him. If the God of the universe is for us, inclined towards us, finds favor in us, then the opinion or opposition of any other person really just doesn't matter ultimately. If God is for us, Who really cares about the favor and hate of the rest? Their favor is worthless. Their opposition is futile. If God's for us, who can be against us? No one that really matters. Our Father is the God of heaven and earth, and he is for you because you are part of us, and he is for us. On your dirtiest sinful day, on your sweetest successful day of walking with Jesus, on your first day of knowing him as a a follower of Jesus Christ, on your last day of drifting to see his face his favor is for you and there's no one that compares with him our second piece is this his favor is alive and his favor is vast look at verse 32 and uh, now now here's, here's here's the argument okay i have i have people to do some amazingly nice things for me but i have two categories of really nice gifts okay one of them is a person who deeply loves me and gives me a great, great gift of love, okay? And there's another category, I think we'd all identify this, which is the write-off big gift, where you, you are, in fa- like, you, you seek the favor of somebody, they got something for you, and they give you a large gift to signify the end of relationship, the end of don't ask me again, right? Hey, can you give me 100 bucks? And they slide three across the table. And you know what that means, that's the last time I'm giving you anything, right? The the terminal big gift. When I read this passage for years as a kid, that was my dominant thought. And I don't. I'm no da- daddy or mama wounds or whatever things going on here. My parents love me and are super generous to me. But for me, when I read this passage for years and years, I tend to read the argument opposite as the argument is. The amazing gift given in this verse here. Um, of course, it should mean that. We've already got all this out of him. We should probably not go back and ask for more, right? The favor has been maxed out. Now we shouldn't go to the other side. That's how I read it, not how it's was intended. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, that's the father, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He gave his own son. What else could he not give us is the argument. What would he not give us if he gave us the most precious thing, the son of his love? If he would give that, he's telling you, I'm for you. Who can be against you? And you want to talk about me being for you? I gave you the most precious thing I had, which is my son. And if I'll give you my son, what else am I going to deny you? Now, this isn't intended to be like an um, open checkbook of wants and desires. And like, man, I'm feeling like I want to. Chevy Silverado today, like right there. This is not this kind of lesser stuff. This is, this is this is the real stuff, the things you really need, the good that God is really working together. If he gives us his son, the most precious, he's saying, how are you not picking up that I'll give you everything? I, I will give you good. I will bring you to good spots. My favor is not exhausted. My favor was not just a one-moment time in life where I loved you for a moment and loved you largely and now let you out. To stray, the giving of his own son was a demonstration of the intensity of his favor towards us. All the other gifts are far less consequence of preciousness, as awesome and as precious as they are. Including the people you love. Including the people you want to love. Including the things you always dream about. The great experiences of your life. All those things are great, but they're nothing compared to him. Brothers, sisters, we are precious. Absolutely precious in the eyes of the Father. Uh, the argument here being only an astronomical preciousness in the eyes of him would move the perfect father with perfect, fierce love for the perfect son to give him up to death for us. He goes, my favor is this. The one I loved perfectly, who is perfect, I gave him up for you. I love you that much. That's what it means for me to be for you. My love is, in the words of Piper, white hot for you. I'm full of passion and desire for you. It's an astronomical preciousness. Express it in a couple different ways. 1 John John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. First John 4.10, in this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the removal of God's wrath. Romans 5.18, but God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We do a number of funny things with God's love. Number one, we put God's love on places God's love shouldn't be. This is a passage written to God's children not to the whole world. So we often start it because we're just a bunch of man-fearers and overly, not even benevolent. We're just like weak a lot, right? So we first of all just put God's love to extents and, and, and places that it's not intended for us to see. We're not listening to the you, you, my kids. So we need to figure out where this is written, my sons, my daughters, my boys, my girls, the ones that I love, we got to quit playing around with flimsy thoughts and insinuations of God's love being flighty or short or reluctant or indifferent or like insinuating that God is some kind of benevolent overlooking indiscriminate half-sanilic lover who doesn't have a clue of the the junk that's going on in our world and the junk going on in our hearts like we we need to listen to what he's saying about the love listen to what he says he goes, I know what's wrong here. It's called Romans 1 and Romans 2 and a little bit of Romans 3. I know what's going wrong. You don't know what's going wrong. You're just looking at the fruit. You see a bunch of dead fruit and some good fruit hanging around there, and you, you don't understand the trees and the soil. Let me explain all this. I know what's going on. He goes, let me, look, let me show you the fix and the cure as I send my son and how all this works and why the son's work on the cross actually pays the penalty for sin. And then let me tell you that penalty for sin paid that brings you to a spot where you sit under my love. You are the apple of my eye. It's, that's an Old Testament expression. In case you read it, meaning if you look at somebody, I'm um, gonna pick somebody. Who gets it? Who gets it? Any snoozers today? All right, just kidding. So um, Harper. So, so Harper snoozing. So if I look at Harper, um, and what you're gonna find in the center of my eyeball is Harper, the apple of my eye, the one that I'm gazing at. Okay. Apple of the eye is just an expression, Old Testament expression of the focal attention of God himself or person, right? We are the apple of his eye, but we often come to God's love and we just, we define it ourselves or we let Disney do it or our mom do it or something else do it, but instead, man, man, back off human definitions of love. Back off uh, human definitions and targetings of God's love. Let's go to the Father and let him talk about his vast, white-hot precious love for us, is so strong, he says, that I deeply, deeply love my son. And though I loved him that much, I loved you enough to deliver him over for you. And that wasn't a thing to write you off or to get you off my back. That demonstrates my ongoing love for you. Everything else is under that. Everything else is guaranteed. God's love is passionate and pointed straight into his children, into us, Believers in the sacrifice, son, and that love is blood earnest. It is blood earnest. Our third piece today is this. His favor is secured by the Trinity. His favor is secured by the Trinity. You know, you read these passages so long. I'm 49 years old. I came to know Jesus under 10. I don't know. i read these passages so many times, but um, I haven't got to study this passage until this week. It's the first time I've actually ever done all the study work on it man, there's just nuggets all over this thing. Like, and you just kind of skipped over between cups of coffee and breakfast cereal doing your devos for years, right? And then all of a sudden, you slow down, like, man, there's so many cool things here. So look at 33 to 34. Who, okay, remember we're in the who zone here. This isn't even the what zone, the who. If God is for us, who can be against us? Answer, no one of any consequence at all. Because the Father's love and heart for us is white hot. Verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Okay, two things. God's elect. Word here, um, once he's selected. That's what it means. It doesn't mean he, el- like, they weren't elected offices or something like that. Um, the, wor- the Greek word here is the word we get eclectic from, right? Eclectic means um, a chosen assortment, right, of things, like, a, just very different. So these are the ones that God has reached out and plucked and pulled. That's his family, right? doesn't matter what nation you are born in, that doesn't guarantee anything. If you're a Jewish person, that doesn't guarantee anything. Like, God is doing this thing of assembling a family, an eclectic family, from the different peoples and cultures and nations and colors and types in this world and putting them together and making them into the image of him. Refining us, conforming us to his image, we found in verse 29. So who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That's a good question. That's a really good question. Because now that I've established that God is there and he makes all things and he's spotless and he's full of love and he did this amazing sacrificial judicial thing, sending his only begotten son to die for us and we have looked to him and said, yes, I want that death to count on my behalf. Then you know what we go on to do? We go on to sin. Looking at all of that goodness straight down the barrel and sometimes like you've known it more than you ever known it now you're like... 67 and you've translated and memorized it, and taught everyone about it you know it more than anybody's ever known it before and you still are an idiot in sin against God and the older you are and the longer you're looking at that the more it actually frightens you because you have a far better view of God than you've ever had before you have a far better view of the just the insulting stupidity of our sin I mean How many times can the stupid same thing tempt me in and me to give into it and to dive into it and disgrace the Lord of glory, my Father who's loved me, my great Lord and Savior and brother, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again for me. Your sin will increasingly grow in vastness in your eye. Even though those of us that are sitting outside of it can sit back a little bit, and this is why you need God's family, we can see that God has dramatically changed you. You're looking more and more like Jesus all the time. In That moment you came to him? You were perfected in Christ Jesus. In the halls of heaven, your record is clean. And on planet Earth here, you may, and may look like Jesus. So 40 years into this, the graph goes like this here. And we see that it's going up. We see that you've been changed more and more and more to be like Jesus. But for you, as a person who's more acquainted with Jesus, there are times where you can barely see that. Because you see just how awful your sin is. And you see how not awful he is. And the difference between the awfulness of your sin and the greatness of him is crushing, question-driving at times. He calls us to remember, though, these very things, to remember this favor, this love he has for us. That's why we as a church family are there, too, so we can help each other see past those things. Or to affirm it. Like... (laughs) I think that might be a good question. Maybe you don't have a reason to think that you've known the Lord. Maybe we haven't really seen sanctification in your life. If you have justification, declared just before God, you will have ongoing sanctification. If you don't have ongoing sanctification, that probably puts a good question about what have you actually ever known the Lord? Did you actually call out to him with your whole heart and soul calling upon the name of Jesus? It's a really good question because we sin. And as we go along, our sin is more and more hurtful and uh, obvious to us. And the question of being charged before the Lord is a very good question. It's a very fair question. If Satan, the great accuser, is to go before the Lord and say, look at my boy Kevin Heller. Look at him. All these years you saved him, rescued him, gave him a fantastic wife, two awesome little wee ones, has provided all these needs for him. And look, again, again, he just spits in your face. That's probably a fair accusation. It's a fair accusation. It's so what the accuser does. He's pretty good at it. But it can not only be Satan who does it. We saw Satan do the Job. We saw di- Satan do the high priest in the Old Testament. And on the book of Revelations, we still see Satan sitting there. He is the accuser of the brethren. He accuses. And he'll accuse in you. Believer and loved child of God, he will accuse in you and accuse you to you. And you have a choice. Listen to the accuser. Listen to what God says about you. Listen to the accuser. Listen to what God says about you. And maybe he'll use one of his boys and girls on that. Or maybe actually it will be a brother or sister in this church who in weakness and non-grace, non-gospel thinking comes and accuses you. Not of doing a wrong, but of being wrong. Calls you to condemnation is the language. It's a really good question. The verse, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, the one who is raised, who's the right hand of God, who's indeed interceding for us. In our current culture at the moment, accusations are all that's needed. No proof, right? Accuse somebody of something? Done. Sexual misconduct? Done. Deal. Accuse the things that work? Done. Uh, accusations really matter, but we don't work in the court of earth. We work in the court of heaven. But accusations mean a lot to us, especially when they're valid. So, what about with God? What do you do when when. When your sin is brought before the Lord by you by an accuser of heaven and earth the answer is not here is not what God will do but rather what the accuser will find it's not what God will do it's what the accuser will find it's a who answer And it's really kind of cool all right I'm not'm not I'm not, pers- not, not going to profess to you that I'm an amazing Greek master Okay, New Testament is written in Greek but when we teach these passages here we, we work the original languages into the n- into the English and, and just to make sure that we're understanding it well. Nine times out of ten, English is just awesome and fantastic, and the English in here is awesome and fantastic. But there's kind of a poem in here that you can't read in English, okay? Um, and it, and it goes it goes like this. I'm not going to quote. I don't. I'm not going to quote a Greek poem. That'd be ugly. Um, but it goes with this. It starts off with who will bring charge against God's elect? And then it switches off into kind of a scene. It's almost like a scene. I'll describe it this way, of what that person comes in and brings a charge against an elect, one of God's, one of God's people. He comes in and brings a charge against Chloe. What is he going to find? What's he going to encounter? The language, the, the grammar of the Greek changes, and it says this. God is the justifying one. Who is the condemning one? Christ is the dying one. Christ is the being raised up one. Then it shifts who is in the right hand and who is interceding for us it's kind of this cool scene of like what does an accuser find accuser finds god that's what accuser finds god is justifying we're not just we're not righteous god is the justifying one what does accuser find finds god himself actively justifying and making his people right who is the accuser Who's the host, right? That person right there, like, who is it? What you find God justifying over here, and you look over here, and what is Jesus? Jesus is dying in the other corner. Jesus is paying death penalty. He's making righteous. Jesus is having death penalty. Even more than that, then we have Jesus being affirmed as that and being raised back to life. So these three moments in here, we find that God is doing that. And then to bring it to clarity, it says in two sharp sentences, who is in the right hand of God? And who is interceding for us? Jesus Christ did all that and now lives, and he's doing two things up there. Number one, he's interceding for us. And number two, he's at the right hand of power. Jesus Christ rules and reigns. What does the the accuser find? It finds God, justice being taken care of by God, and he he doesn't mess up. Who does he find paying for sin? Christ paying for sin, not us paying for sin. He sees Christ raised. And now, coming to full square terms on this, Jesus is standing there at the right hand of the Father, adorned in power and in control, no longer suffering, inactive power. And what is he doing? He is standing there interceding for us. What does the accuser find? Everything except for what they wanted to find. They found God there. God doing it. God justifying. God dying. God rising to life, God standing in power, and God speaking to God on our behalf. Which we saw him doing in us in verse 26, right? The Spirit now intercedes for us. And now Jesus is interceding for us. Same chapter. The Trinity itself, he is securing us. Why are you secure? Because of your grip, because of your goodness, because of your performance, because your nobility? Nope. You're secure, and God wants you to know secure because the Trinity himself holds you. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all on duty, actively at work in you, for you, in the throne of heaven. You are rock-solid secure. Rock-solid secure. It's an amazing picture, and you need it. You need it, Christian, because you still do sin. And you need it because you need to remember his love for you as you still do sin. And you need it because people are going to make stuff up about you. Even when you're not causing the problem, which we do enough, when people make stuff up about you and make accusation against you, you need to remember the father is saying, like, listen to me, son. I am for you. Who else matters? And let's remember what for you means. I rejoice over you. I sing over you. I quiet you with my love. And should the occasion happen that accusation is brought before, you know what they're going to find? You know what they're going to find in the justice system? They're going to find 100% me, not you. Me, the justifier. Me, the dyer, the riser, the rainer, the interceder. They will find me, and I don't lose. I'm not a variable. So, here's... Here's the kind of the, the funny deal I, got, I would just say to you as a, well, okay. Here's, here's old, another Old Testament example of this. This is in Zechariah 3, 4, 1 to 4. It's an, it's an image of the accuser in the Old Testament. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing there it's a vision. Saw Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand close to him, accusing him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. Satan the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you is this not a brand plucked from the fire now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments and the angel said to those who were standing before him remove his filthy garments from him and to him he said behold I've taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments You kind of have the old thing in the old same testament old testament right we are people we need forgiveness we need God's grace and he gives it, and he doesn't take it away. And he holds tight onto us. We are safe from the accusation and condemnation of the court of God. He himself is our righteousness, who made us righteous, died for us, rose for us, stands in power, and intercedes for us. We are safe from the failure of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, because the Father, Son, and the Spirit do not fail. Thus being completely safe from being disqualified from that favor or ever, ever losing an ounce of it. So brothers and sisters, is this going to be about you or is this going to be about God? The God of heaven. If you trust Jesus Christ, the God of heaven is saying like this is about me. Look at me for you. Put your confidence in me for you. You need to know that. That's what he's equipping you with so you can go through this here and now life that is hard and can endure suffering. That's the tools. He's doing it, but part of what he's doing is giving you an idea of what he's doing and how he stands for you and how he doesn't cast you off. So you got to know God's sovereign, unrelenting love for you. There's a fair question we talked about last week. How do I know if I'm the Lord's? That's a fair question. Let's talk about that. Uh, let God's family, let us as pastors, God's family, your MC around you, sort through those things because it can be hard at times to discern. Am I real? I'm wrestled with sin. Am I real? Let's talk about it together. The promise is if you truly go to the Lord, God will save you. In that one moment in time, as a four-year-old or an 84-year-old, come to him genuinely. He will save you. But sometimes our genuineness in that can come under question. I've had many friends that have questioned that as believers and going through the process, realize that they've always been a believer. I I'm strong in that. And I have many friends who kind of moseyed into Christianity, kind of I sometimes became members of the churches and hung out in the, Christian, in the Christian world for a little while that all of a sudden came to realize, I am not submitted to Christ. I am not wholly submitted to Christ, and I am not wholly submitted to the work of Jesus. And it wasn't until years later that they realized that, and it made sense of their life. And so we would love to talk to you and help you think that through and discern that. But if you know him, rest rock solid in, him, brothers and sisters. If you're a middle schooler, high schooler, college person, mom, dad, grandpa, grandma, anything in between, Know the love of God that he has for you. If this God is for you, and he is for you this much, and he stands for you in heaven, who is there to worry about? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would please be with us now as Wes leads us in prayer, um, that you would lead us by your spirit to consider your word and these things and teach us and guide us.